part of this very formidable panel discussion this afternoon, um, entitled From Lagos to Cape Town, When a City Becomes a Partner in Crime. Um, the three gentlemen on the stage, the three writers, need absolutely no introduction. And for that very reason, I think they do indeed deserve a short introduction. Um, so I'm going to start in the middle. Um, Leia Adenle uh, is an award-winning Nigerian writer who has written a very provocative crime thriller, short stories, and flash fiction pieces. He has appeared on stage in London in plays including Ola Rotimi's Our Husband Has Gone Mad Again. Um, Leia is named after his grandfather, who is also a writer, or was also a writer, and a former king of Oshogbo in the southwest of Nigeria. Easy Motion Tourist, his debut novel, was awarded the Prix Marianne in 2016. Please don't judge me on my French, I'm sorry. And he lives in London. Welcome to South Africa and a particularly windy Stellenbosch, Lee. It's nice to have you here. Uh, Be here. <coughs> Dion Mayer, sitting on the far side, is a top-selling, multi-award-winning South African crime thriller author whose books have been translated from Afrikaans into 28 languages. Um, he has written several feature film screenplays, including Yakel's Dance, The Ballade from the Robbie de Vier, The Last of Tango, which he also directed, and Jagfeld, who which he co-produced, and also series for television like Orion and Transitu. Dion lives near Cape Town, and that's not nearly a, a full um, biography. But, um, Mike, on this side, Mike is a Cape Town-born journalist and writer. He's the founding editor of the crime fiction blog, Crime Beat, really well worth a visit. Um, he's the author of the Revenge Trilogy, trilogy sorry, that started with Payback, continued with Killer Country, and concluded with Black Heart. Nickel is also a writer of nonfiction, and two of his novels have recently been translated into Afrikaans. That's absolutely not the only language it's been translated into, but of particular interest to me. Um, welcome, all three of, of you. Um, Leah, I'm going to start with you, if I may. Um, in a postcard from Lagos, uh, <laughs> broadcasted on the BBC radio, you made the following remark. Lagos, she keeps changing, and that is how she stays the same unpredictable, exciting, and an inviting mistress. Um, she will strike you the moment you let your guard down, like a roller coaster ride you never thought you'd enjoy. And then in a recent interview, you proclaimed, I love Lagos. She's up there with my three greatest love affairs. And like every memorable lover, she has, on occasion, shown me her darker or her different side. Now, my question to you is, um, are these dichotomous descriptions also true of your portrayal of Lagos in your novel, Easy Motion Tourist? Yeah, um, absolutely. Um, so, in the book, uh, there's a very dark part of Lagos that is, uh, are there any Nigerians here? From the government, maybe? <laughs> no? Good. <laughs> yeah, it's exactly true. It's nasty. <laughs> it's, it's a work of fiction, like any work of fiction. And I mean, there's some, if my, one of my greatest heroes in writing, Peter, uh, uh, James Peterson, if you read his books, you'd believe that, you know, America is full of serial killers. And, you know, if you go out in New York, somebody's going to follow you home and 
kill your cat and kill your dog and if you don't if you don't have dogs they'll buy you one just so they can kill it you know but we know it's not true you know so i was easy motion tourist is purely crime thriller so i've set it in the kind of places you would expect if you're a lagosian you'd expect to come in contact with crime and also some places where you don't really see the crime but they're just thrown in for good measure but i would just like to say that Nigeria and Lagos is a very beautiful place. It's a fantastic place to visit. People are safe there. Not if they make it into my book, but generally it's a great place. <laughs> Thank you. Um, I'm interested, why the decision to actually um, portray La Lagos in your book from different perspectives, from an insider's perspective or insider's perspectives, and from a very privileged outsider? perspective. I mean, Guy Collins is an outsider, and he's also one of the protagonists in your novel. Um, why the decision to, to do that, to that, that, you know, that, that uh, multi-perspective? Well, taking Lagos as, uh, Lagos a city as a character itself, uh, it's a city that can't speak directly for itself. It cannot have speech. You know, true, true, the speech or the inner thoughts of a character, you can tell what they're like, you can start to understand what drives them, their psyche, uh, what their preeminent purpose in life is, where they've gone wrong and all of that. But when you're de depicting a city as a character, you cannot do that. The only way you can really do that is through other people's interactions with the city. And you want to get a balanced view. If it's everybody who lives in the city, then it's like the character telling you about themselves, telling you, I'm great, look at me, I'm beautiful. But it becomes useful to actually see another perspective and bring some objective you know, analysis to it. That's the technical right answer, but the truth is it just happened. <laughs> I just wrote it and it yeah. worked out. <laughs> Um, just out of curiosity, b before I move on, I just wanted to know, you said that uh, Lagos is one of the three greatest love affairs. I'm so curious, what are the other two? <laughs> May I ask that? Um. <laughs> wine and woman. <laughs> yes, uh, red wine is definitely one of them. I do not drink too much. I don't have a drinking problem, only when I'm writing, <laughs> but never when I'm editing. Uh, so yeah, wine is one of them, and uh, wine will get you if you're not careful. And uh, of course, the last one is, of course, women. <laughs> and uh, yeah, those are the three great loves. Thank you. Um, Mike, in an interview uh, making sense of our world on Slip, Stellenbosch Literary Project, you made the remark, my crime novels are set in Cape Town. They are brief forays to Johannesburg in a couple of the books. But Cape Town, the Cape Town setting is because of my fascination with this city. Now, my question is, what, what fascinates you about Cape Town? Oh, that's a stupid question coming from someone from Potsdam. But in any case, um, um, what, what, what fascinates you about Cape Town? And how does that fascination actually influence the the portrayal of this city as a character in your books. Yeah. Two things before I start. I now know what it feels like to be interviewed by the Hawks with these bright spotlights in my eyes. It's really disconcerting. 
The other thing is, I'm not going to ask if there are any members of the South African government here, <laughs> because I know they're all looting the coffers and they don't read anyhow. <laughs> Cape Town. Um, what is, in, in sort of doing, I actually did some preparation for this panel, would you believe? And um, Dion and I write about the same city, and I find it really interesting that we've now got, there are a whole bunch of crime writers in Cape Town writing about the same city. But all the portrayals of Cape Town tend to be different because we go to different spots. Uh, interestingly enough, in, early Dion, in some of Dion's early books, there was a cafe in Clough Street where I think he'd set some characters and I'd set some characters quite independently without knowing that he'd done it. Uh, so there are going to be overlaps. But as for the real thing, the real thing to me is that it is a city of such contrast. There is the rich stuff around the mountains and on the seaboards, and then there is Mitchell's Plain and Kailicha. And the spatial geography of Cape Town, okay. how do you include all of those dimensions in a book? So that to me becomes a challenge with each crime novel, is how do you represent all those facets of this very diverse city in one book, and I think that's one of the challenges and why I particularly like Cape Town. Yeah. Uh, Dion, is that also the case in your, in your books and, and when you are writing? Yeah, for me, let me just, before I start, I also have one interjection. Leia, I've known you now for almost two years. You never told me you had a granddaddy who was a king. I could have gone around telling people I know royalty. Now <laughs> I mean, you know, you've got to be upfront about these things. Um, I'm, I think I'll always be an, an outsider in terms of what, what Cape Town is. I did not grow up here. I never, I've never lived in Cape Town, really. Um, I've only been here now for, for 30 years, um, living in Strand, Durbanville, and, and now Stellenbosch. So I'll always look at, at Cape Town from the outside looking in, which I think is a very different perspective to what Mike will have as a Cape Townian, as someone who grew up here. Um, but absolutely, I think there are as many Cape Towns as there are people here because everybody, every person looks at Cape Town, looks at any place differently because of the places that they frequent, uh, the things that they see and like and dislike, uh, and whatever they do. Here. Yeah. Um, Mike, um, you're also the writer of a book, Sea Mountain Fire City, mm. uh, living in Cape Town. Now, I was just wondering, how does the depiction of life or living life in Cape Town in that book differ from the, the portrayal of Cape Town in your, in your thrillers? It, it didn't really. I mean, the book was a project which my partner, Jill, foisted on me because we were building a house. And she said I was completely impossible, so why didn't I do some writing instead? <laughs> because at least then that got me out of her hair. So I ended up writing that book, which was quite interesting because for me, Cape Town, the, the role of fire in Cape Town became pivotal in that book. And fire has played a part in Cape Town right from the early, early settler days. There was an account uh, where the slaves set fire to a stable in order to protest their existence against the Dutch settlers at the time. To this day, we have fires ravaging the mountains and often set, set you know, the mountain is often set alike just for the hell of it, because there are people who are disaffected, 
who do not feel part of the society, and this is one way of expressing their dissatisfaction. So there is this continuum through history with, with the city and metaphors like fire. Wind is another thing. I believe you think that this is blowing in Stellenbosch today. Believe me, as far as I'm concerned, this is a breeze. Where I live, when you go outside, if you don't hold on to your clothes, you'll be stripped naked in seconds. It's a great place. You should go down there, particularly to the beaches. But then I've noticed that there are a lot of students here who don't wear much clothing anyhow, so I'm not sure which is the, t the best advantage. But, but to come from the non-fiction side of Cape Town into the fiction was not a great step at all. And, uh, you know, it was useful doing that book, but, but I think once you've been in the streets of Cape Town and you've heard the lingo that is talked, it's easy to get it into the books. And I mean, it's, it's one of the things that, that fascinates me about Dion's book, Particularly with Icarus, there's a lot of, there's a lot of uh, Afrikaans in it and a lot of Karps Afrikaans. And I think retaining that is one of the great battles that one has when you're published in English. Yeah, yeah absolutely. Um, a follow-up question on that is, um, when you actually frequent specific spots in a city, but you also want to include experiences that take place in other spots, less frequented spots by the, the writer himself. Um, what type of, 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 of research do you do to actually get, get the feel and the, and the grain of, of, of those city spaces and those cityscapes right? And that's a question to all of you. <laughs> oh, you guys. It's called a hospital pass. In Rugby, it's called a hospital pass. Um, Tais, I think... I'm speaking only for myself. I write fiction, so I retain the right, po the poetic license to keep it fiction. The story determines everything. The story determines where the characters go and, and which part is, parts of the city they frequent. And I will then go there and just look around and try and get a feel for it and then think what would my character think. I mean, try to see it through their eyes. But I, I don't necessarily worry too much about getting it right, as you said, because for me, verisimilitude is my only standard. It's got to have the texture of truth. It doesn't have to be the truth. It's got to feel real and right to both Cape Townians and people who have never been here. Um, so I will, I will basically go there, and if it's really just a very small part in the book, I'll stoop as low as Google Earth, uh, to, to, to make sure what it looks like. Then. It looks like, yeah. Leia uh -huh. and you? Exactly what Dion said. <laughs> just switch kept on for the <laughs> I'm glad. Um, uh, Mike, you, I mean, your experience as a journalist, does that influence the way you look at the portrayal of something like the city? Is it more factual? Is it more, are you, are you, yeah, are you more concerned about the facts and getting it right and no, staying, staying, you're true to, to the. Pick up on what Dion is saying. I have two answers to that question of yours. Do you want to hear about all the research I've done, or do you not? A lot of audiences want to hear about the research. Then I tell them I go to all these places, <laughs> I check them out, I spend hours. What really happens is I don't go anywhere near these places for the reasons that Dion outlined. I don't want them to interfere in the story. I go afterwards to see whether I got it right and whether I should send notes to the architect to improve the building. <laughs> um, 
Which I think is a better way to do it, because the story, as Leon says, is everything, and you can't let the facts get in the way. So I, I tend to stay away. The journalist in me, I started writing fiction at the same time as I started journalism, so I don't... Oh, yes. And we all know that you know, no journalist lets the facts get in the way either. So it, it, it was an early learning curve. I have students who have been journalists all their lives, They've now retired, they want to write fiction. They battle to write fiction because they can't leave the facts alone. And I tell them, you know, don't write about what you know. Novels are about what you don't know. And that thing is difficult for them to understand, but it is absolutely essential. Yeah. Which is why I kill people, because I don't know what it's like <laughs> to kill people. <laughs> you um, know, sorry. Yes, you know, yes, Leigh. To buttress that, I was on a panel recently in London uh, where this gentleman, no, I wasn't on the panel, I was in the audience. Uh, where this gentleman had written an historical fiction, a piece of historical fiction work. And then there was someone in the audience who put their hands up and told them that uh, in your book, on this page, blah, 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 you said that this river runs through this city at this point. It doesn't. And the author goes, it doesn't? Get a copy of their book, flip through it. It does. It says it there. <laughs> <laughs> what a lovely story. Um, but I mean, so, so, so am I correct? You, you start with a story, but still you favor Cape Town as a setting quite regularly. So why do you return to Cape Town again and again? Can I just jump in before Dion answers? There's, there's, there's I think, a tension in, in the real city and, and the, the imagined, imagined city. city. Um, Stephen Watson once said to me, no city is a city until it has its imagined self. self. And during the years of apartheid, Cape Town didn't have an imagined self. Cape Town has only had an imagined self actually since 1994, mm -hmm. largely thanks to Dion Mayer mm. and the rest of us who followed in his footsteps to recreate the city as an imagined city. And I think it's that tension between the real place and then the city that one imagines. So yes, I want the streets to be the real streets and some of the real cafes so that you can go around. And I think you've now got a tour around Cape Town, haven't you? It's not me. It's, some, it's uh, an independent tour operator. They, uh, You're not taking responsibility for Not at all. <laughs> <laughs> or any money. But, but, but the, point, the point is that somebody's seen the worth in doing Think that. Yeah. And that Dion has created an imaginary city. And I think it's the tension between those two which I find fascinating. Fascinating, yeah. Dion and you? Well, I, I started setting my stories here because I'm here, and I absolutely love Cape Town. Let me admit to that up front. I think Cape Town is by far the most beautiful and interesting city in the world, and I've been to quite a few of them. So I absolutely love the place, and I love letting loose my characters in the city to see how they interact with it. But as Mike says, it's, it's an imaginary city. Mm. Um, but only half, I think, half of my books actually happen in Cape in, Town. In Cape Town, yeah. And, and, you know, basically because that's where I started, and now Benny Griesel works for the Hawks in Cape Town, and he'll probably kill himself if they transfer him to Pretoria, so, you know, <laughs> yeah. I don't want that to happen. <laughs> Absolutely. Um, Leia, and is know, that... Are, are there any Pretoria people here today? Uh, oh, thank God. No. <laughs> <laughs> he could end up making a lot of money. <laughs> um, Leah, and you, is the Lagos in your, in your books also an imagined Lagos? Well, to a large extent, yes. Uh, I did spend part of my adult life in Lagos, 
So I was writing, I was following my father's advice. A very long time ago, he said to me, he had discovered stuff I was writing as a child in school notebooks when I should have been learning, I was writing. And uh, he, he found one of this and he said to me, uh, I've read this, I thought I was in trouble. And he told me, no, you're not in trouble. Um, <laughs> just write what you know about. Oh. Because then, as a child, I was writing about purely imagined places. I'd never been to England at that time, but knowing Nigeria's funny relationship with Britain, it was, it was my curriculum. It was the books I read growing up. It was everywhere. You know, I was reading uh, Meal on the Floss and stuff like that. You know? So I naturally started setting my stories as a child in these places. And he told me to write about what I know, and I know Lagos. Um, but even the Lagos I wrote about was a Lagos I had not been to for five oh, years when I was writing about it. And I was just telling Dion over lunch today, I went back to Nigeria in November, and then I went on a road, which is very important in my book, Bar Beach, that road, yes, yes. which is where there's a, it's a lovely beach, lovely, almost white sands, you know. And coming up to the road, what do I see? There's where we used to see ships on the horizon, there's a skyscraper, you know, this, the beach doesn't exist anymore. And had I done my research, when I was writing the book, I would have discovered that the developers had uh, won the rights to sand fill, you know, kilometers and create a new city right where the lovely beach used to be. So in a lot of ways, uh, I, I remembered Lagos in a certain way. I probably embellished Lagos in certain other ways, but if you try and remain true to exactly what is, it'll, it'll get in the way of a good story. Story. Yes. It's fiction. Yeah. Mike, you're absolutely right. I've, I've read recently that there is indeed a very innovative uh, or innovative travel agency that actually um, offer, an, as they call it, a very unique audio-visual city tour to all the city sites from Dion's novels, especially 13 Hours Trackers, Seven Days Cobra, and Icarus. And it sounds to me like a very um, uh, interesting initiative promoting creamy tourism or something like that. Um, Dion, I'm just curious. Do you ever feel the burden between introducing a city, a city like Cape Town, especially when you think about an in, uh, international reader. That burden of introducing uh, a city that is not known, um, showing that city, I mean, you, you say it's a beautiful city, but I mean, obviously, the portrayal in your novels are not the stuff that postcards or travel brochures are necessarily made of. So made of. Um, and then you show the underbelly of, of that specific, or that, 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 that's that mother city, uh, metaphorically speaking, of course. Um, do, you, do you sometimes feel a little bit, yeah, yeah that it's, that it's difficult, that you've, got a, that you've got a responsibility to actually hold up a certain view of Cape Town, and now you're actually, you're actually doing something, something different? It's, it's a great question, and to me, it's very interesting. Leah and I were on a panel together at Harrogate in, in the UK last year, and we were the only two guys there who had to defend our cities mm -hmm. because of the negative perceptions that Europeans have mm -hmm. of, of Africa in general. Um, I, once I started being published internationally, I got a lot of questions from media in France and Germany and the Netherlands and America and the UK 
saying, but um, you know, is, is Cape Town as bad as you say? Then I asked them, but is Stockholm as bad as Stig Larsson made it? Yeah. Or any other city, any other crime author? Most readers, I think, know that crime fiction exposes the dark underbelly of any setting, whether it's New York, London, Stockholm, Paris, I mean, you know, name any city you can think of. Um, there was a time when I, and I still feel that South Africa is getting a really raw deal, probably as bad as Nigeria is getting internationally, and especially in the, in the Northern Hemisphere. And for me, it hurts because tourism is South Africa's main source of uh, foreign income, of, of um, foreign currency. It's the, the generator of the most jobs in South Africa. So the worse the perception is of tourism in South Africa, the fewer people will come. And the, the, the interesting statistic, we, we're sitting with a lot of South Africans here, and they probably have as negative a perception about our country as, as a lot of Northern Hemisphere people have. The fact of the matter is that if you're a tourist from the Northern Hemisphere, statistics during the last 10 years show that your statistical chance of being the victim of a serious crime in South Africa is about the same as people visiting Nor uh, um, Wales or Ireland. Uh, so it's, it's a very safe country for Northern Hemisphere tourists to visit. Uh, and that to me is my, has been my big uh, diplomacy campaign overseas, is to try and set that record straight. Um, but I felt no pressure in portraying Cape Town in any other way right. than, I, than I have, because that's what crime fiction is all about. Mm -hmm. Do you want to add something there, Mike? <coughs> Dion is still dealing with... I've sort of moved away from crime fiction and gone into espionage. Oh, yeah. So I have... There is less of that sort of crime that, that one would find in a crime, crime novel. Mm. Uh, it, it came as a bit of a surprise to me when I had moved into, the, into espionage to find that I didn't have anybody dead for the first 40,000 words. <laughs> and um, I was quite horrified by this and so immediately killed off half the characters in order to up the, the, the body count. Um, because espionage is a very different uh, kind of fiction and people tend to die less obviously. Also, I realized that how I treated the city was changing. And in the current book, Agents of the State, the attempts that I'd had earlier to try and incorporate the whole of Cape Town's geography suddenly went out the window and I wasn't that bothered anymore. I was just interested in where the characters were and there's a large section that is set in Berlin. Mm. So mm. it even goes outside the country. And then in the end of the book, I went to Trekkersburg, which is a fictional city uh, originally created by James McClure, and I decided that I would go in there and reuse it. So I've used the streets, I've used some of the shops, many of them have closed down uh, <laughs> in my fiction and probably in reality as well. But it, it, so, so the use of the city has changed, and I also wanted to get to a, to a completely fictional place in our literature, which McClure had provided for me. Okay. It's a, it, you know, the thing is, I think, as a writer, nothing stays the same, same. and you're continually moving. So Cape Town as a place has now started to look different to really? me as well. Yeah. Dion, do you also think that, that the portrayal of Cape Town has changed um, in, your, in your novels of the past few years? Yeah, absolutely, because Cape Town has changed. 
And my characters have changed, so yeah, I, I think so. But I just want to uh, respond to Mike, uh, Mike's fictional city now. Ed McBain, the great Ed McBain, wrote about a fictional city called Isola, which uh, means island in Italian. He was of Italian descent. He was writing about Manhattan, uh, but but he never called it that. He had this fictional city, the police structure and everything, and I, I always wondered why he did that. Mike, and maybe you gave me the answer now. Maybe well, Trekkersburg was Peter Maritzburg for James okay, McClure. Right. Um, but he, I don't know, he needed the metaphor. Perhaps in 1969 it was important to do that. Uh, I just thought that here was this wonderful place which he described. He'd given streets, he'd put shops on the street corners, you know, and it's a just, it was just going, it was just dying. So I thought, did, no, did, no, did he write about to be the resurrected. Province? Did he write about which province it was in? Did he say it was in Natal? Uh, no, it's, okay. it's, and that was the other interesting thing is that it got set in, in a kind of imaginary South Africa. So there was this city which was imaginary set in this, set in this imaginary mm -hmm. province. Which, which, you see, Bosman had done with Willemsdorp as well, which yeah. I think is more located in the north of the country, yeah. and I think there are more signposts to that fact. But, I mean, it is also an imaginary city. Yeah. So we have a history of imagined places this in is, this country. Yeah. Uh, my Cape Town is also imaginary to, to the extent that it is the Cape Town that I want it to be. That, you know, it's, it's sort of an idealistic, I, ideal Cape Towner. Idealized Cape Town to a large extent, I think. Mm, I, I think it's okay as it is, actually. I will, <laughs> you know, there's a fabulous beach at the end of the road, and it can stay there. <laughs> Lee, you are um, busy with uh, finishing your manu your second, uh, the manuscript of your second novel. Yes. Um, uh, the portrayal of L Lagos in that that manuscript or in the second novel is it very similar to the La the Lagos? With the same focus, with the same as in the first one, or um, I mean, I, I suppose the story will change. So does yes. Lagos and, uh, change? Changes well, like accordingly. I, said, I I went to Lagos in uh, November, and a lot of things have changed, and um, there were tiny little details in the first book that changed. I mean, just tiny things like an entire club not being there anymore. Mm. Right, and I had to do something about that. So, but then again, the locations, the story, the people in it is all driven by the story, by the plot. And the new book, whereas the old, the first book happens a lot in, it does a, it plays with a juxtapositioning of poverty and wealth. And you see the slums and you see the, uh, the expensive mansions of Ikoi. In the new one, it's more of a political drama uh, it's a sequel, proper sequel, but it's the main character, Maka, is not dealing with uh, violence against women anymore. Uh, she still is, but uh, what she's dealing with more, the bad people she needs to deal with are politicians, mm -hmm. are you know, people with political aspirations, and it's those political aspirations that she meets head on. And to do that, she needs to go to where these people are. So a lot of it happens on private boats and expensive boat clubs and uh, country clubs and homes of the rich. But a few of them also happen in the interior of Lagos where the electorate are, where the people voting are, in the shanty towns, in the 
cities, illegal cities built on stilts, on stagnant, dirty, putrid lagoon. So you still have a little bit of that. You've seen Lagos from different perspectives. Perspectives. But it's a different story. Story. Dion, um, will you ever use Cape Town as a setting for one of your dystopic novels? <laughs> and if so, how will that Cape Town look? <laughs> well, I don't know if there will be another dystopic <laughs> novel. We'll have to see how Fever does internationally. <laughs> Uh, the people who like the book are putting a lot of pressure on me to write a sequel, but we'll we'll see. see. I don't know. You know, it it depends on. Uh, for people who has not read Fever, uh, I don't want to say too much, but I mean Cape Town does feature in in Fever, uh, and there is the possibility of of people then moving down here. Yeah. Um, and that would be interesting. I wouldn't mind doing that because that'll be another completely different way of looking at a place that I know and love. Yeah. Can I, I just want to ask Leia a question. You've been living in London now for quite a while. Would you ever consider setting a book in, in London? Uh, well, I actually thought about it. And I thought, yeah, I know London very well. I know some amazing places in London. I can probably start a tour of London and make a lot of money from it. <laughs> but I'm Nigerian. I know Nigeria, and I feel like it gives me an advantage. Mm. You know, I, I have this market, this, this exciting place, this Lagos, which is just an amazing place. I mean, it's got more, there's states, there's, there's streets in Lagos that have more millionaires per capita than entire West African countries, you know. Why would you not want to set your stories here? You know, I have, it's like, it's exactly what it is. I have an advantage. You know, I can write about this great place, Lagos. I better write about it. One day there'll be too many people writing about Lagos, a lot of them better than myself. Then I'll start writing in London. Right. <laughs> but not till then. Right. Um, uh, well, more than one clever literary critic has remarked that the most effective of crimes, fictional topographies, are the ones that reveal something about the protagonist and something of the society in which they or he or she lives. Um, well, I consider some of your, your novels as uh, examples of so-called hard-boiled detective fiction. I mean, Mike, you just said you are moving more to espionage now. Um, but what do you think, what does Lagos or uh, Cape Town, for that matter, reveal about your characters um, and about the walking the mean streets and doing what they do and um, and the society they find themselves in. I mean, Leo, your your character, one of your characters is actually not from Nigeria. He's a he's, he's an outsider. But mm -hmm. but what does that reveal about his his view of the city? Um, I wanted to ask that question to all all three of you. Well, with um, with Guy Collins. Uh, can I say a bit about what the book is about? Yes, please. All right, so it's about a woman called Amaka who runs a charity that watches out for sex workers because prostitution is illegal in Nigeria. Her charity gives them you know, education, protection, stuff like that, but that's only what she does officially. Secretly, she keeps a record of the men who use prostitutes in Lagos. Uh, so this way, uh, if a girl is about to go with a man she's never seen before, she can text Amaka the license plate number, <clears throat> the car registration, and Amaka can look on her records for what, if any, details she has on a man. And this way, Amaka can tell the girl, uh, you can go with him, you can charge him this much, it tends to be rough, 
he likes going with two girls make sure you're with a friend so you don't end up with a stranger with him but more importantly she can say don't go because on her records there are men that have taken girls and they've never been seen again you know because in a country in Africa in most of Africa where belief in traditional religion runs side by side with belief in the Abrahamic laws people still turn to so-called black magic and some of the rituals did, uh, demand human blood and prostitutes who nobody's going to miss they make the best uh, victim. So Amaka's fair is a day a girl would turn up dead because she didn't want them. And the book kind of happens, starts on that day. Now one of the narrative voices is Guy Collins. Uh, in fact, the only first person narrative voice is Guy Collins, who's a reporter from England who's just come into Nigeria and just, you know, gone out clubbing and uh, gotten himself into a lot of trouble. So we tell a lot of the story from his perspective. What does the book tell us about him, about Nigeria? The, the fact that you can see Lagos and not see Lagos. There's so many sides to that city. It's like graduating from university and then meeting some friends or some people that went to your university years later and you're all talking about your time in school and you're like, whoa, we had such a great time. And they look at you and think, no, I wanted to kill myself half the time. And you're wondering, were we in the same school? And that's exactly what Lagos is like. There are two Lagoses, not two. There's, it's a multiple, it's, it's, there's so many layers to it. It depends on where you go. So Guy, what we see in Guy is this coming with assumptions about Lagos and discovering something else about Lagos. But more so in Amaka, we see something about Lagos in Amaka. We see the tenacity of Lagos. Once upon a time, I think about 12 years ago, uh, I think it was the BBC or somebody did a survey and Nigerians were the happiest people in the world. And as Nigerians, we all took this news and we laughed at it. We're like, really? We're poor? Our governments are thieves? We've got armed robbery? We've got no electricity? How can we be the happiest people in the world? And we laughed about it. We were happy about it. Now, it's such a contradiction, <laughs> right, that I only see in Nigeria. And we see that in Amaka, we see these contradictions in her character, we see her tenacity, we see her, you know, a lot of Nigerians, and I think we need to start exploring this in ourselves and trying to analyze it and understand it and do something about it. We are extremely confident and for no reason. You know, it's not backed by anything. Yeah. But you see it in Amaka and, you know, it's, it's a mirror of her society. Right. Yeah. Wonderful. Um, Dion, I want to ask you something. Um, do, you, do you sometimes view Cape Town as an opportunity to actually allow characters in your novels a voice that were not given a voice previously? Um, and I, I'm, I suppose it's not that intentional, but, but do you sometimes feel that or is it not a thought that no, crosses the mind? You, you credit me with way too much intelligence. <laughs> um, no, I, I don't. I simply don't write that way. Okay. For me, as I said, the story determines everything. Yeah. And the story is going to determine which characters get voice to. And I try to let that happen in as organic a way as I possibly can oh. by just allowing the story to happen. Um, what I do love, one of the things that I love most about writing is that I get the opportunity to see my Cape Town, my South Africa, through the eyes of so many varied characters. There's 
the Zulu Mbali Kaleni, there's uh, um, Vaughan Cupido from the Cape Flats and Benny Grizzel, for instance. And they will each have a different perspective on Cape Town or on, on South Africa. And that enriches me as an author. I love doing that kind of thing. But again, I can only enjoy it when it actually happens in the story. When, if, if my preference to do that starts driving the story, I think I will fail miserably. Yes. The story has got to drive everything else. Yes. Mike, um, your, your experience, do you want to add something? Sorry. I think, I, I think the interesting thing about writing about cities in crime fiction is that the character becomes incredibly important in discovering the city. And the characters that we deal with have access to all kinds of spots in the city. Police, the police have access almost wherever they wish to go. Uh, private investigators, it's a little bit more restricted, but they get to places that, that most people don't normally get to. One of the reasons that I had my protagonist, Fish Pescado, as a surfer, was that I could propagate the surfing spots around the peninsula <laughs> uh, in the interest of drawing international tourism, of course. <laughs> uh, so I, I, I think what happens there is that the crime city actually f uh, has an impact on the sorts of characters that we deal with. Whereas when you're dealing with general literary fiction, your, your focus is entirely on the character and less on how the environment is affecting uh -huh. that character. Um, do you ever, and to which degree do you, use the city as a political allegory or as a vehicle to highlight socio-political injustices? You know, I think, I think as Dion says, when one writes um, and this stuff comes out as part of the process. One has a worldview, one has a, an idea of, of, of what's going on and that all gets fed into it. And so there is a particular political stance that, that the novel takes, I suppose, if you were to sit back and analyze it. But, but I mean, I, I'm not conscious of that when I begin to write the story. Yeah. The story is there, the characters are there, they're doing things to one another. Sometimes they're not doing nice things to one another, sometimes they are. Uh, and that's really the essence of what one's about. And I think the political side to it is, is what happens afterwards. Yeah. Yeah. I was fascinated Tess, by your discussion with John Miles the other day, we were here, and one of the things that I told Marianne when we left, I said, John Miles is so incredibly aware of what he's putting on the page, in terms of all the layers and all the, uh, the high literature stuff, and that, that's why he will win big prizes and I won't, because I just, I'm just not smart enough to do that. I mean, I'm just too unaware in my writing process. I'm just aware of story. I'm, no, no, I mean, no, 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 you, no. You're, you're undermining yourself. No, no, but Mike No, no, true. you are. No, no, what we're dealing with is the high aesthetic of the plot. Yeah. They're not dealing with the plots yeah. at all. A plot is the most extraordinarily incrite... Absolutely. Incrit Intricate. Intricate. <laughs> it's just like verisimilitude. I can never say that word either. Um, it's a very intricate thing, and, yeah. and I think it is underestimated the demands that a plot has on a writer. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. And the structure in our genre. No, granted, Mike, but still, I mean, to be that aware of all the layers that you're putting into a book, all the comments, the social, political, and comments on humanity that, that John Miles was aware of. I mean, th that was such a, a high-level discussion, and I was just, when I saw that Taste was also chairing this meeting, I thought, oh my God, I'm in trouble, because if he's gonna start questions like that, 
then uh, you know I'm, I'm not being able to answer. So we could, we could thanks for dumbing we down could this. Deconstruct your books <laughs> along exactly the same lines. Lines you we can, want. yeah, yeah. No, that is true. I I agree with that. Leia and you, do you sometimes use your 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 city setting and your your novels to to actually resist the status quo or to challenge political views or to undermine them or to no, ne never. I mean, this is the first book I've published, but it's not the first complete thing I've written. In fact, possibly the first book officially that I've published is a, is a blog. Well, not a blog. It's a novel I wrote online for free without having my name there. Uh, Chronicles of a Run Scale. I just found out this December, this January, that they'd been studying this at the University of Birmingham without even knowing who wrote it you know, for the past two years. Yeah. And it could have been political, but it wasn't. The closest I've come to writing something political was a short story about um, t titled People Who, Those Who Wish to Rule. And it talked about somebody who's newly elected as president of Nigeria. I wrote it because of the new president we have when he came into power. And it was a statement, not, it was not partisan. It was not ideological, it was just a statement about power itself. And I think I read somewhere, somebody who should know said, you know, once you start, once you have a message you want to tell, you've lost, you know, the art in the book. Now that said, about literary fiction, I grew up reading a lot of literary fiction and uh, a lot of them was painful to read, you know. <laughs> And the pain became fresh again recently when someone said uh, to my publisher, don't put his books up for awards because they simply won't win them because it's not what people want, which has turned out to be true in Nigeria, you know. And I just don't know why we still believe, you know, audiences or readers, some readers, not the people here who know better, but why would I want to pay my hard-hand cash to read a page about a person combing their moustache. Really? <laughs> or someone considering the shade of the sun and how the certain hues of the sunshine represent the different emotions that they feel, and then they list all the 1,000 emotions for us, like, do I really care? You know? And, but then when you want to put together a plot, when you want to talk about things have to happen in sequence, I read a lot of crime fiction by you guys, by everybody, and I'm amazed by the intelligence that's gone into mm. making it simple and making it work. Yes. Because if one thing was out of place, if, if, the, if the writer did not, if the protagonist had not run out of ink on, in their pen, if they had not stepped onto the platform at the exact time they did, everything would break apart. Oh. And these books are excellent because a lot of thinking a lot of engineering, I dare say, has gone into the book. But how much engineering does it take to start a book and for one whole chapter, we're still talking about the sunset? Nah. <laughs> nah, I think literary fiction is, can be fraud sometimes. Lee, I must admit, I have no life, so I, I enjoy a whole page of, of the sun setting. <laughs> but, um, <laughs> but saying that, I also want to, to actually... Um, yeah, to link to what, what Mike said, and I think that is very true. You know, when you read a, a book about a murder or about espionage, and it's in, intricately plot, mm -hmm. plotted, and all the, 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 the loose ends are tied up neatly, mm -hmm. it's only considered a crime thriller. 
when you do that and you leave everything open and you don't even solve the murder and you deconstruct it so that nobody can understand it, it's high fiction. So <laughs> I don't know. Um, you know, it, it is actually quite true. Yeah. I'm going to invite some answers from the, the audience at this stage. I think just to, you know, to shake things up a bit. Um, are there any questions? Please just wait for the microphone before you ask your question. I remember Can not everybody together, please. <laughs> interestingly, when you talk about the panel we were on, on uh, in Harrogate and how we need to constantly defend our cities, Cape Town and Lagos, question time in Harrogate, and the first question to me was from a gentleman whose question was, we've been talking about books, our books, and crime fiction, and it goes up and it says something like, uh, I think my brain is trying to forget it, but his question was to do with, he just wants to know where, when do Nigerian businessmen get to do business if all they're doing is sending fraudulent email on the web? Yeah. And I thought, yeah. dude, really? I remember that. Yeah, of yeah. all the things he could ask, you know, yeah. like, did you actually come here because you saw there's a Nigerian here and you'd been scammed? You've been stupid enough <laughs> to read an email saying, yeah. I've got five million pounds, I want to yeah. put it into your account. Yeah. Just send me 50,000, and then you <laughs> sent money hoping yeah. to defraud the Nigerian government, and you know, now you've lost your money, your hair, and it's just painful that we have to ask, we have to answer such questions. So, um, but you know, that's, that's the biggest challenge we have as authors from Africa mm -hmm, in mm -hmm. the Northern Hemisphere, yep. is fighting the stereotypes about yeah. Africa, fighting that negative perception. People, they, they only see the bad stuff about Africa on their mm -hmm. television mm -hmm. sets. Mm -hmm. So when they pick up a crime novel that they see is set in South Africa, they think it's going to be about children going hungry and, and you know, just civil war and, and death and destruction. And it's, it's very hard yeah. to break through those stereotypes. But you see, Dion, there's an interesting thing there. And, and you do it, I do it, Lil does it. We, there are scenes where normal things happen. happen. Kiddies coming home from school, People on the beaches, people mm -hmm. sitting in restaurants, the traffic jams. Yeah. People making um, love. Oh God, no, I'd never do that. <laughs> <laughs> Jesus, no. Yeah, that's <laughs> terrify people. <laughs> you know, we're a puritanical society. We don't do that kind of stuff. But, so there are normal things that yeah. happen, but not no, pornography. No, fair enough. But, but, but the problem is, Mike, you need them to, to buy the book first before they can get to those things. Mm. And I, that's the barrier. It's, yeah. And in yeah, most yeah. of the countries in Europe where I've been published, I, I first had to break through that barrier, and it took a long, long time. Mm. Sure, but I, I, I'm just trying to say that we are not to blame. No, it's true. <laughs> but, but in the interest of presenting no, yeah. the best possible yeah. picture, there are normal things yeah. that happen. There are writers in this country where no normal things happen in their books, and there's yeah. one I know in particularly. But, but yeah. that is not a true picture, and I feel that you don't give the reader any breathing space if yeah. it's just horror and damnation yeah, coming true. down the tubes yeah. all the time. So there are the odd sex scenes, <laughs> blowjobs and things like that, <laughs> Kenilworth Main Road. <laughs> Anyway, so I'll be answering questions about Nigeria, don't worry. There's a question at the back there. I know Dion said that the writing for me is a discipline. He starts 8 o'clock and he works till 5, 5, 5 o'clock. Do you start, on all of you, do you start with a basic plot? And then 
go expand on that as you go along, or do you have a bigger picture which you which you fill in with a with a story? Mike has a beautiful way of t tell them the story about the car driving at Mike. Mike, <laughs> that's beautiful. I know you attributed the story to me, and I'm grateful for that. But the story actually belongs to E.L. Doctorow, uh, oh. and his. He was, apart from writing fantastic novels in, in the States, he was also a creative writing teacher. And he came up with this analogy where to write a, a, a novel is you get into a car on a dark night and the headlights illuminate the road ahead of you. And that's all you can see, but you know that this road goes to a destination. You don't know the destination, but you, you start driving and as you drive along, so the lights go further and further and further until they get to the end. And I think that's how many of us end up writing. Um, I don't certainly sit there with an entire plot worked out and, and go from there. Lee Child, I was interested to read the other day, sits down on the 1st of September and he has no idea of what's going to happen next and writes the first sentence and the book happens from there. I mean, how do you guys do it? Same here. You just have an idea. Uh, every single thing I've written, from short stories, apart from even when you're writing for the BBC or some magazine, you just sit there and then you start writing and it comes out. You have an idea. But I know that a lot of people teach, they do classes where they teach you how to plot and everything. It's, I just feel it's too rigid. And in yeah. my day life, I'm, uh, I, I, uh, I'm what you call an agile coach, which is sort of like, like a teacher of nerds. So I teach um, software engineers how to build software, but not in the traditional way. We call it agile. Whereas we used to build large... Did you know that 30, only 30% 30 of features in large software ever gets used? You know, if you're not an accountant, you're not using 10% of the features in Microsoft Excel. You know, so why are we spending time building these things? It's because we plan everything up front Right? We assume we know everything, so we fix that big scope, and then we start building from the ground up. But Agile says you can't know the scope of anything. You can only have an idea. So build small little pieces that are useful, chapters, and then see how that's gone, and then go on from there. Have an idea of what you're going to do. And I sort of do the same thing with writing. I call it the Agile approach to writing. I know what the big story is, the theme, but I don't even know who all the characters would be. I just start with one chapter, which for me needs to have a beginning, a middle, and an end. And then based on that, your characters surprise you. They decide to do something stupid and, okay, we need to resolve that in the next chapter. I think it's an incredibly difficult thing to explain because it's, it's both not planning at all and also planning to a certain extent. I always, for me, it's very important to know exactly where I want to start. I think the start of especially a crime novel is a hugely important decision that you make. Mm -hmm. But writing is really a process of taking creative decisions and living with those consequences. Um, I have a potential ending in mind and 50% of the time the book ends totally differently. And that's to me the, the fun of writing. Mm -hmm. But it's a, it's a, it's a, an obscure process. It's a, it's a process of discovering the story through, through the writing process, mm -hmm. but also sort of having an instinctive feel for what you might be doing with the story. Mm -hmm. And I know that's, that's a cop out of an answer, but it's really the best I can do. 
And if you're only getting up at 8 o'clock, that's appalling. <laughs> <laughs> We've um, heard a bit about it. Um, how you develop your, your, your plots. And we've also heard ab about how cities and places feature in your, in your work. Um, I'm just interested, are these, are these layers that you, that you, you develop and you, and you invent at the same time and you have, uh, and how do they, how do you m merge them? Is it a, is it an, an, a, an active and a, planned uh, merging, or does it happen as things go along? This is one of those things where what answer do you want? <laughs> yeah. The first answer is I don't know. <laughs> and the second answer is I still don't know. <laughs> I, I think it's, this is an instinctive realization that you've got to merge, you've got to tie up all the loose ends, you've got to do that. That's what the, the uh, genre demands. So you know you've got to do that. How you're going to do that, you don't know from the start. But you sort of work it out as you write. And as you conclude the book, you sort of do it. And I, I can't tell you exactly how. You, you do it by focusing on it, thinking about it, coming up with creative solutions until it eventually happens. You know, I also think that um, somebody said, uh, and often quoted, there's no such thing as good writing, only good rewriting. So you write the first time and you've got the story there, it's done. Then you go back, and I've noticed this on the sequel and the third book that I'm working on, and you find strings that you never knew were there. You find connections that you never knew were there, and then you tie it together. And then also sometimes you find loose ends you thought you tied up and they don't make sense. But getting it out first, then revisiting it, and uh, then the magic happens. And then you give it to your editors and they they make it good. <laughs> I, I, there's, there's, there's a, I think there's three things that happen in the novel, and that is there's the first bit where you set up what's going to happen in the long middle passage. And you get through the long middle passage, and, and this, to, this has happened to me with, with each book. At the end of that, I kind of know what's got to happen, but it is completely frightening and terrifying because I don't know how to do it. So although there's a sort of intellectual idea of what's got to happen, there is this fear of how do I pull it off? Are all the threads coming neatly together? What is going amiss? And, and no matter how much experience one has of writing these books, that never gets any easier and the fear never gets any less. Oh. And I, what happens then, I think, is that what I've learned is that if you just stop worrying about it, but you keep thinking about it, Eventually, your, your brain, and I dissociate myself from this item in my head at this point, will work something out. And it's got nothing to do with me. It's got to do with what we all have as human beings uh -huh. sitting in our skulls. And uh -huh. I'm separate to that. I'm the silly guy who just does the typing. And this thing will sort out the plot. But it does take time. And one's got to be able to give it that time. That's so true. Okay, um, just one last question. We, we are running out of time. Yeah, over here in front, please. Thank you. I don't think I'm alone in believing that the truth of turn-of-the-century London is what Sherlock Holmes has showed me, or the truth of mid-century Boxburg is what 
David Goldblatt has shown me. Will your visions of Lagos and of Cape Town still survive in 50 years' time, given the information explosion that we have? Or will it be Google Earth that will show people what the cities were? Definitely Google Earth. Yeah, I, I must, my, my answer is I don't care. <laughs> I, it, it, it's not important to me. I, I don't want to leave behind some sort of a monument of what Cape Town was. I'm just trying to create entertainment. So, you know. Uh, the, the, just one thing to the side of all that. I think our literature is slipping away from us right now. And I don't think it's going to be around in 50 years time anyhow. Uh, why, Mike? Uh, you can't end with that kind of stage. No, no, no yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that's a curveball. You know, interestingly, yesterday I was on a panel with Ingrid Winterbach, and she said that she wanted to be written in. She wanted to be in English so that she could be part of the greater South African literature. Now, I feel that one of the best poets that we've ever had is N. P. Van Veek Lowe. N.P. van Veek Lowe is more remembered to this day than Douglas Livingston, who is one of the best poets that there's ever been in the English language in this country. And he is slipping away, whereas N.P. van Veek Lowe still has a presence. And I think that has something to do with, not think, it has something to do with the language and the people who preserve the language. And I think what is happening with English is the literature is slipping away and will slip away. But hasn't that always been the case? I mean, if you look at 18th century, 19th century British or German or French poets or Swedish poets for that matter, uh, times change, people slip into uh, yeah, but there's, there's, obscurity. There's, there's Proust and there's Baudelaire and there's Wordsworth and there's Shelley and there's Shakespeare. They're still there. Whether we're going to have those voices in the future, I don't know. We're writing crime fiction. I expect oh, that J. to disappear. J.M. will be there in 100 <laughs> years' time. God forbid. <laughs> um, on that, That's that note, thank you. <laughs> thank you so very much, Mike, Dion, and Leah. Um, well, I think there will be, uh, or fiction will be around much longer than 50 years. And um, I think it's so reassuring, really reassuring, to think that the crime novel is in the hands of three intellectuals like yourself. It really is reassuring. It's been such a privilege to talk to you, and I'm sure that after this laborious conversation, maybe even an in inquisition, um, your next novels will take place in the countryside or in a small town or something like that. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you, Thank you very much.